tonight on the KRBD Evening Report. How Independent Dan Ortez pulled out a win in a state house district that voted for Republicans by double digits. Plus, exploration resumes at the Niblack Project on Prince of Wales Island. All that and more coming up. First, let's take a look at the weather. Partly cloudy tonight with lows around 30. We'll have northwest winds to 10 miles an hour. Chance of rain and snow on Tuesday with highs around 40 and northwest winds to 10 miles an hour. Snow on Tuesday night with moderate accumulations. Lows around 30 with southwest winds to 10 miles an hour. Wednesday, rain and snow likely with highs in the mid-30s and southeast winds to 15 miles an hour. You're listening to the KRBD Evening Report. I'm your host, Eric Stone. Voters re-elected Ketchikan's Representative Dan Ortez by a wide margin, returning the independent for another two years, representing House District 36. We took a look at why the former school teacher might have performed so well in a Republican-leaning district that supported President Trump by 14 points. A sizable majority of voters cast their ballots for Republicans at the top of the ticket. President Donald Trump, Senator Dan Sullivan, and Congressman Don Young each racked up double-digit margins in the district that stretches from Metlakatla to Ketchikan to Wrangell and parts of Prince of Wales Island. Teresa Darlene Heitman says she was one of those Republicans. She says she's religious, conservative on social issues, and generally fits the profile of the mainstream GOP. Uh, when I look at the issues, I, I, I'm, I'm all against abortion, and I'm a, I've been a Republican all my life, so I'm just kind of like going to probably do the Republican thing. She spoke to KRBD on Election Day at the polling place where she cast her ballot in person. But there was one race where she broke from her party, her local house race. I did vote one independent because he's my buddy, and I know him very well, and he's good. Yeah. And, uh, and the mudslinging did not change my mind at all. <laughs> <laughs> Would you mind sharing who that is? Uh, Dan Ortez. Yeah. yeah, I really like him. State Republicans didn't hold their fire in this race. Leslie Becker, the conservative Republican challenger, launched attack ads in mailers and on the radio, calling Ortez a liberal ally of Democrats. But those attacks didn't seem to land with voters like Heitman. She says she's a former Alaska Marine Highway System worker, and she sees Ortez as an ally of the ferries. Because Southeast Alaska is, you know, the economy is already start getting ready to die, and the ferry helps us a lot. All the transportation and the things that go on the ferries, people do not realize how, much, how important it is and how much uh, it, it benefits Southeast Alaska. But it's about more than policy or even party. It's about Ortez himself. My kids grew up with his kids and his wife has been my te- kid's teacher. And so has he and he's been my friend for many years, Dan Ortez has, and I really um, admire him and respect him. And there was another factor at play. Becker polled poorly in communities with large Alaska Native populations, and that helped Ortez score a 21-point victory. He garnered about 80% of the vote in Metlakatla, Heidelberg, and Saxman. Metlakatla resident David R. Boxley says that's due partly to Becker's controversial blog posts that touted resource development as a cure-all for social ills like addiction and alcoholism in rural Alaska Native communities. I mean, I'd, I'd uh, be naive to say that uh, his opponent's comments weren't uh, a factor. Becker rejected any notion that her writings were racist. But the Simshian artist says Alaska natives didn't just not like Becker. Many looked favorably on Ortez's three-term track record. He, he listens to us, and, um, and he knows us. He's known us for a long time. Neither candidate was born in Alaska, Becker moved here four years ago and recently completed a term on Ketchikan's school board. 
Ortez came to Ketchikan in 1969 as a child and has been a fixture in public life. He often addresses Ketchikan's city council. He knocks on doors, and he says his 21-point win, his largest margin ever in six years, speaks to the power of being close to his constituents. District 36 voters know who I am. I, I've been here a long time. Uh, they know Dan Ortez, and um, evidently, um, from what they've seen so far, that they're relatively pleased with the service that I provided. And as a corollary, Ortez says his choice to run as a nonpartisan independent makes it easier to reach voters on both sides of the political aisle. In the House, Ortez wielded influence as a vice chair of the powerful Finance Committee. He says he's hoping to return to that role, but it's unclear whether Republicans will have enough members for a caucus or there will be a return to the bipartisan coalition that Ortez had been a member of. You know, I'm pretty confident that um, I'll be part of a majority. Um, but confident is different than actually seeing it happen, so we just got to wait and see what those two uh, results are. So what's in store for House District 36's Republican Party? It's too early to say. Neither the local GOP chair nor Becker would comment for this story. But like most of Alaska, the Republicans continue to wield more influence than any other party. They remain the second largest voting bloc after undeclared and nonpartisan independents. Exploration is resuming for copper, gold, and other metals on lower Prince of Wales Island. As Coast Alaska's Jacob Resnick reports, drilling crews are returning to the Niblack project, which has been idle since 2016. The Niblack project ramped up in 2009. In the years to follow, the company Heatherdale Resources says it plowed tens of millions of dollars into exploration efforts. But investor money dried up, and by 2012, full-time exploration had ceased, where it completely stopped in 2016. Now, after a corporate reshuffling of debt and rising copper and gold prices, the company plans to bring back a two-dozen-strong crew by the end of the month, says CEO Rob McLeod. So we'll be drilling both from surface, so it's a track-mounted um, uh, diamond drill, which brings out cores of the rocks and can go uh, down. We'll probably be drilling holes, you know, generally no more than, uh, than 1,000 feet. Most will be shallower than that. And then uh, we'll be able to take the drill hole, drill underground and uh, be able to drill in, in multiple directions, th 360 degrees, uh, essentially. The Vancouver, B.C.-based exploration company has a surface drilling application pending with the State Department of Natural Resources. Most of the project area is on private land near Moira Sound. Supplies are flown in or shipped by barge or landing craft. Niblack has been touted as a potential working mine that, if developed, could one day be a major regional employer, about 30 miles southwest of Ketchikan. But there are environmental challenges to work through. There's potentially acidic runoff from a rock pile near its Lookout Mountain deposit. The company has permits from state regulators to discharge mine waste through a sprinkler system and an inactive water treatment plant. More on that in a minute. Both permits expired this summer, but were extended by state regulators while the company files for renewals. Niblack's project manager, Graham Neal, says its mine waste collects in a settling pond before the liquid runoff is discharged on land. It's a passive treatment system designed to filter out any, any contaminants, and then that discharges from an effluent from one of the ponds into the land application disbursement system, which is essentially a, a sprinkler system into the forest environment. All drainage from the mine portal has been and still is monitored, sampled, and reported to the State Department of Environmental Conservation, he added. Critics say that's not an effective way to keep heavy metals and acidic waste out of the environment. 
The mining company has a facility that could treat the discharge, but it's not using it. In filings back in 2015, it successively argued that the nearly $4.4 million it cost to run the plant over five years would be too expensive. The state of Alaska is not requiring them to chemically treat the water um, because they say it will be a financial burden to the mining company. That's Guy Archibald, staff scientist with Southeast Alaska Conservation Council, an environmental group based in Juneau. Well, I think that the, the mines need to stand on their own. They're either financially feasible or they're not. Uh, offloading their, their costs of treating pollution onto the public that owns the public lands should not be allowed. In a statement, DEC says all of its permits are designed to ensure that the project doesn't harm the water quality and other resources that Alaskans rely on for their economic and social well-being. The company says it plans to continue surface exploration well into next year. Reporting in Juneau, I'm Jacob Resnick. It's no secret that many television shows, movies, and video games have a history of inaccurately representing indigenous communities, if they portray them at all. Realistic depictions of life in rural Alaska are also rare, but a new video game set in southeast Alaska seeks to turn back the tide on that history. KCAW's Aaron McKinstry has the story. It's a familiar scene for Southeast Alaskans. Two people stand on a small ferry as it cruises down a protected channel between walls of snow-capped peaks and evergreen forests. Suddenly, they hear a noise coming from the water and rush to the edge of the deck. Did you hear that? A whale breaches. Whoa! Isn't that place like home? Yeah. What's extraordinary about this scene is not so much the whale or the increasingly rare sighting of a state-operated ferry, but the fact that it's a scene from an Xbox video game called Tell Me Why, which showcases life in a rural Alaskan community with remarkable accuracy. The characters are heading from the fictional town of Fireweed to the also-fantastical Delos Crossing. But that place is loosely based on the real town of Huna, a small, predominantly Clinket community on Chichikov Island. There's even a poster on the ferry advertising a Clinket dance performance sponsored by the Huna Heritage Foundation. I think there's, you know, a movement in a lot of entertainment industries to be more culturally accurate in the representation of their characters. And rather than just have a, a Native American character, you know, which could be so many things. That's Amelia Wilson, the executive director of the Huna Heritage Foundation. She worked with publishers from Xbox and game designers from the French company Don't Nod to make sure the world they built was based in reality. This isn't the first video game to include indigenous voices, but this kind of conscious inclusion is still a rarity, she says. It is unique and it is rare. And we are a small remote community. And so it was a really exciting process to be part of something and to see our culture and community represented and reflected in a, a mainstream media. Wilson's work included everything from helping them pronounce clinket words to advising game designers to drop a raccoon getting into the garbage scene to finding ways to incorporate clinket values like gift giving, which shows up in this scene. It's a gift, Tyler. You know what gift giving means in clinket culture and what it means to refuse one. 
Tell Me Why follows twins Allison and Tyler through an intimate journey that explores trans identity, violence, and poverty. It doesn't go as far as giving Native characters starring roles. The twins are white. But two of the main characters are Clinket and were played by Indigenous actors. Because we have very complex characters and, you know, we tell complex stories, we think it is important to have them uh, as authentic as possible. Florent Guillaume is the game director for Tell Me Why. He says his team wanted to contrast that intimacy with the vast landscapes of Alaska. They were also drawn to the rich cultural history and tight-knit communities in Southeast. And we decided to take a trip to the place because we didn't want to, you know, to represent some kind of fantasy that we had as uh, French people. During their trip to Huna, game designers collected sounds and took pictures, ate traditional foods and met community members. And they connected with local Clinket artists to work on the game, like Gordon Greenwald. You know, initially there were two things. I told them I, I know nothing about video games. Uh, probably the last video game I ever played was Pong you know, back in the 70s, 60s or whenever. And, and the second thing was that he couldn't design pieces that had cultural significance to a specific clan. They didn't have a problem with either stipulation, he says. Greenwald and Norwegian Clinket artist Jeff Scaffelstead submitted drawings of art like totem poles, clan houses, and masks to the game's graphic designers, who then converted them to digital format. The process wasn't perfect, Scaffelstead says, but what ultimately convinced him to participate was the opportunity to challenge stereotypes and bring awareness to his community and his people. If, if somehow this improves the world that that we live in locally here and it can make things better for those that are not here yet that is so classically clean get that it was almost we can't turn this down he says it was a chance to tell the world that despite centuries of attempts to erase their culture and language they're still here reporting in sitka i'm erin mckinstry That's it for tonight's KRBD Evening Report. I've been your host, Eric Stone.